welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. I'd like to welcome our newest members, Melissa, Jill, Stuart, Kevin, Sege, Paul, Ellen, Katie, Kara, Kathleen, Michael, Sharon, Sean, Mike, Greg, Alyssa, and Lawrence. Thanks so much for the support, everyone. And right now, over on the members' feed, we're coming up to the end of our series on St. Patrick. So make sure you update those feeds. Now, I've received a couple emails and messages from listeners regarding the feasting series, but one message in particular stood out, and I wanted to share it with you. It's from Paul C. on the forums. Jamie, after listening to your podcast, I was pleasantly surprised to realize how similar Dark Age feasts were to regimental dinners carried out by the British Armed Forces, such as best clothing, mess dress, medals, different for each regiment or corps, a master of ceremonies who controls the whole event, People arranged around the table by seniority and military rank, not by who your friends are, strict etiquette and rules enforced by the regimental sergeant major, who's the senior soldier at the event, relatively male only, drunkenness frowned upon, but if the guilty party is popular and amusing, usually let off. I'm just coming to the end of 27 years in the army, 20 years of which in the sergeant's mess, and it was interesting to hear how little has changed. It should be interesting when you get to talk about Huskarls and how the British soldiers are similar now. You know, this has to be one of my favorite emails I've gotten so far. It's amazing how the culture that was born during these so-called Dark Ages still lives on today, isn't it? So I thought you'd find that interesting. Now I have one other thing I'd like to mention. Ages ago I told you that there might be a Staffordshire Horde project in the works, and I got a bunch of questions from you. And since then, actually for the last five months, we've been hard at work on this project, and we finally have some good news for you. The interviews are largely getting lined up, and now it's a matter of getting dates together and then dragging my butt over to the UK to do it. And there will be more news soon, but I wanted to let you know that this is very much still moving forward, and there's still time to get your questions into me. And we'll have a variety of experts to discuss this material with, so feel free to ask any questions you might have regarding the Horde. It should be quite interesting, and I am incredibly excited about this. Okay, so I've had requests for an episode on construction. Actually, I had a surprising number of requests for it. So we're going to do a single episode on how things were built, and since we've been talking about feasts, we'll talk about, of course, feasting halls. Now, as I've said with much of this material, it's really hard to study. This is because the material they used was timber, and timber doesn't keep too well unless it's in a bog or something along those lines. And while it would have been handy if Churditch decreed that everything had to be built in stone, he didn't. So here we are. And actually, using timber was a fairly smart move, but that's besides the point. And adding to our troubles is the fact that the sites for the Anglo-Saxon buildings didn't change over time, at least not too much which means that the sites end up being tough to analyze because other medieval buildings are being built on roughly the same site. Not to mention that many modern buildings, such as car parks, are built there. You know, like in the case of the possible grave of Richard III. So as you might have guessed, with so few sites that survive and the contamination of the site throughout history, dating anything we find would be pretty hard to do as well. Well, what about post holes, you might be saying? Remember the Balbridey structure? That pretty much was just post holes, so why don't we just have a look at those and figure it out? Well, the problem there is that the buildings appear to have been deconstructed and reconstructed from time to time. Think about your homes. The plot of land that you live on right now probably has had quite a few different buildings on it over time, at least if you live in an urban area that's been developed for several decades at least. So if we find post holes, we can't be sure that they were part of the same building, or even that they were from the same time frame. 
Of course, there are certain ways we can date them, but it isn't always perfectly reliable. And Paulington suggests that keeping the existing building after taking it over, such as if you inherited it or you bought it, might have been seen as a sign of poverty. So knocking down the old building and building a new house might have been a cultural and prestige thing and would account for why these sites were routinely upgraded and rebuilt. And frankly, I've seen plenty of that in our modern culture. If not knocking down the old house, at least building extensions and doing dramatic remodels. And then you have the layout of the village. It would be nice to know how villages were laid out, but that's a thing that's pretty hard to determine because of the scale of dig that would be needed, not to mention the level of preservation. So this is tough stuff, but it's also really exciting, at least to nerds like me. So let's talk about what we know and what we can guess at. First up, we're actually lucky enough to have a building to look at. In fact, it's the only wooden building that survived to modern day. It's a small church in Essex. It's called the Greenstead Church, and it's nearly 1,200 years old. So while it might not reflect what the buildings of the early Anglo-Saxon era might have looked like, and it really is just a representation of what churches would look like, not necessarily what houses would look like. And in large part, it probably also just reflects the era shortly before the Norman invasion. It still does provide a window and a base of comparison to try and piece this all together. We can also turn to the Germanic sites that we have. But we have to do that gingerly because while they're similar in some ways, they aren't identical. In fact, these differences might have been the result of the Anglo-Saxons integrating with the existing Romano-British culture. Now, as an aside, something that will become a recurring theme as we go forward in this podcast is that Britain is a story of integration. If there was a Celtic migration, they would have integrated with the locals, at least over time. We can find support of this in the DNA studies that have been conducted in local towns and villages, such as the Cheddarman experiments. In those studies, we found that there are people who live in the same area who are related to that pre-Celtic and prehistoric man. So it follows that the local population wasn't wiped out, right? And then you have similar experiments, but which focus upon where the population of the island came from. And those experiments suggest that large portions of the local population in Britain are of Celtic stock. And thereby, it supports the theory that the Anglo-Saxons didn't wipe out the local Romano-British, but rather integrated. At least eventually. And the Vikings did much the same thing. And of course, so did the Romans. Really, it was only the Normans who dragged their feet on that whole integration thing. And while there's a lot about 1066 that's important, that refusal to integrate is a big aspect. Anyway, so the reason why the Anglo-Saxon buildings might have been different from their Germanic cousins could be because of the influence of the Romano-British who remained on the island when they arrived. Alright, so halls. The first hurdle that we're going to run into is the fact that we don't have any signs that say, Feasting Hall. We have some archaeological sites that look like they were halls, but basically all that means is that there was a large open space, usually with smaller rooms on either side of it, maybe as storage rooms or reception areas. Remember the gathering of feasters who had to wait to be summoned into the hall? Maybe that's where they waited. But we can't be really sure whether or not these sites actually were halls. They might have been other things such as storage or any number of things. But for right now, we're just going to assume that these sites were indeed halls. But much of the sites that have been found, especially in the early Anglo-Saxon period, weren't halls. They were just sunken featured buildings, which are also known as pit houses. These were rectangular buildings built upon a pit with rounded corners, probably lined with a mix of straw and clay. Otherwise, the pit would have collapsed in. They probably also had thatched roofs. 
Now, the floor is where things get a little bit interesting. See, the problem with sunken featured buildings is that we aren't finding whole buildings, but rather just the shadow of them on the ground and a pit. And the matter of the floor is actually quite important. These people were smart, and Britain is wet. Living in a home that's mostly a pit might make sense in an arid area, and actually there are arid areas that have indigenous populations that use pit houses, and that's because they confer a variety of advantages, such as insulation from the heat. But in a wet climate, why would you do that unless you liked being muddy and thought that pneumonia was sexy? It just doesn't make any sense. And then you have the issue of the roof. If the roofs were thatch, this would cause a huge problem. That's because if the thatch gets in contact with the ground, it would start to rot. So if you built this house on a pit, you would have to make the walls and the roof pretty high. Otherwise, your roof would get manky pretty fast. So why the pit? Well, there's an interesting theory on that. The pit might have been covered with wood flooring. After all, we see references to wood floorings elsewhere, and we'll get to that in a minute. And if that's the case, it could provide a spot for storage, which could account for the rubbish that we found in pits. Another possibility is that it might have functioned as insulation. We haven't really gotten too much into it, but thatch is an excellent roofing solution because it retains heat. So if you stuff some straw into the pit cellar that you've created, well, you'd have some insulation over the winter. And as it decomposes, it would be producing heat on its own. It might not smell awesome, but hey, beggars can't be choosers. But to be clear, these pits weren't so big as to function as a proper cellar. Later on, there would be buildings that would, in fact, have pits large enough to have a basement. But right now, we're talking about a pit that's around three feet deep. So roughly like the crawl space you probably have under your house right now. And based upon the fact there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence of foot traffic in the pits, probably also like your crawl space, it does make me wonder if these were just small cellars or solutions to the issue of insulation. I mean, hippocausts were gone, but maybe this was a solution to the centralized heating problem and a fairly environmentally friendly one at that. But getting a clear image of what it might have really looked like is difficult. And based upon the rubbish we found at the pits, many of the buildings were probably workshops, at least for part of the time, and were quite utilitarian in nature. Not to mention dim. Windows would have been quite rare. So chances are that despite their skill, the early Anglo-Saxon period wouldn't have been one of majesty and grand works of architecture. They were migrants, whether invited or invading, and were in a rather precarious position in trying to establish themselves. It's hard to imagine that among the struggle to survive, you'd have Unferth practicing as feng shui. But that being said, these early buildings probably weren't as dismal and damp as they might appear when you first look at the pit. I've been doing my best to shatter the image of the filthy, backwards Anglo-Saxons. And here we go again. Things didn't suck as much as you might imagine, and the pit houses were probably relatively comfortable considering their circumstances. Maybe not beautiful in the early period, but probably comfortable. And that's because the Anglo-Saxons as a culture were quite gifted with carpentry. In fact, their skill at working with biodegradable materials, and thus not leaving a lasting stone structure like the Romans did, might account for part of the reason why they get the short end of the stick when it comes to public opinion. I mean... Saying, oh hey, they built huge halls, but they're long gone now, so you'll have to use your imagination, isn't nearly as impressive as, look at that massive Roman ruin over there. So for public relation issues, it's a bit of a bummer. But they were skilled craftsmen, at least from what little record we have, and they would have constructed rather impressive buildings as time went on. They were so good, in fact, that they could construct buildings using pretty much only wood. Think about that. 
Rather than using iron bands and iron nails, they could get by with carefully cut timber and what are essentially wooden pegs. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And as you might imagine, during the construction, they used many of the same tools that we use today, with the exception of power tools. They used axes, adzes, hammers, bits, chisels, gouges, knives, saws, and wedges throughout this whole process. And many of the words that relate to this process survive to our modern day, if only slightly changed. And we'll get into this later when we're talking heavily about languages, but this does reflect the working class nature of the Anglo-Saxon words, especially when you compare it to the upper class noble aspects of the French words that got pulled in. There's just a bias in the language. But anyway, I'm going to read a couple of these words so you get a sense of how the language developed and how similar some of these words are. And I'll do my best with the Old English pronunciations, but please bear with me. We have knief, knife, fail, file, anfilte, anvil, handaxe, handaxe, cleot, cleat, wudu, wood, chalk, chalk, spadu, spade, skoful, shovel, getimber, timbering, which was a term they used for construction. Trialgewerk, tree work. Tegelgewerk, tile work. Hrufwirta, roof right. Stafe, staff. Pal, pole. Stock, stock. Pin, pin. Board, board. Beam, beam. Post, post. Even yard derives from an Anglo-Saxon term, yard. Actually, it's surprising how little things have changed. For example, the Anglo-Saxons carefully measured the alignment of the buildings using a plumb line, something we still do today. For major tasks, the carpenters dealt with the construction of the building, but the roof right was the one to handle the construction of the roof, just like today we have framers and roofers. The walls were plastered with chalk and gypsum with a lime wash. That's not terribly different from drywall. And they very well could have had cavity walls filled with insulating material, such as grass and moss, which isn't too different from what we currently do now, only with fiberglass. The construction of these buildings was probably measured using a rod, and depending on the location, it was either five and a half yards long or just barely over five yards. Of course, they would also use fractions of a rod. You can't have everything be five yards or more. But the rod was an effective way to ensure uniform construction and an elegant solution to the problem. Also, it's not terribly different from the idea of a yardstick. So given the sophistication of the woodworking from their homeland, and what we can gather from the record we found in Britain, we can be fairly certain that the Anglo-Saxons really were gifted builders. They probably used heat and steam to bend timber, used a wide variety of joints, notches, trenches, and clasps to bind the timber and ensure the stability of the structure. The thing is that they weren't just the mercenaries and monsters that Gildas speaks of. They built, they planted, they settled, and they brought with them their culture and their own particular style of construction. And based upon the digs we found so far and the intricate decoration that they seem to have favored in their treasured items, it is quite likely that their buildings were also lovingly decorated and carved, at least as time went on. These buildings, at least the more affluent and important buildings such as the Lord's Hall, would have probably been quite beautiful and awe-inspiring to behold. We can't be sure, of course, because none of these halls have survived to modern day, but the signs suggest that they probably were. It's also possible that the floor was decorated in some way. Beowulf makes reference to the colored floor of the hall, and that brings to mind the Roman tradition of colored paving. 
It brings up more questions than it answers, of course. I mean, were the floors of the greatest halls painted? Were they using Roman-style flooring methods in the early era? Were the Anglo-Saxons building on top of old Roman villas? Or maybe the author of Beowulf just wanted to imply a certain level of majesty, and so hearkening back to the old construction methods of the Romans was an effective vehicle to do it. It's possible. It's one of those things we may never know unless we get really lucky with a dig. But while we can't be sure about what was happening with reference to the color, we can be pretty sure that at least some of the better halls would have had wooden floors. Even Beowulf refers to wooden floors of the hall which again supports the theory that pit houses might also have had wooden floors. And here's something else to keep in mind when you think about the look of these buildings and how the villages might have been laid out and appeared. It's possible that some of these halls and buildings were multi-story. We know that the Anglo-Saxons were capable of building multi-level buildings, and were doing so at least by the later era. So the halls might have been both quite long, beautifully carved, and also impressively tall. It's all pretty impressive, isn't it? And it sort of shakes the Rome-centric view of everything Roman was good and everything that followed was bad. And honestly, using local materials such as wood and thatch makes a lot more sense than trying to recreate building styles that belong in a Mediterranean climate with Mediterranean resources. Alright, I know this episode was a little bit late. Thanks for bearing with me. We had a little bit of a family emergency. But don't worry, Kerouac's just fine. It didn't involve him. Anyways, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can follow us at Twitter. Just go to at britishpodcast. And you can also join us on the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Click get involved and click forums. And we'll see you over there. All right. Thanks for listening.